Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. On the last episode of Guilt, Untold Stories. And he, he told the story, which was quite unusual. He said he had seen this girl from the distance and if you go to the area and look out you'd see it's you know one or two hundred meters away from the main highway he saw a girl with a horse talking to a man in a white truck as he drove along the main highway and he thought it was suspicious we uh, we carried on we started looking for white trucks and believe me i think we found every white truck that existed in hawks bay and anywhere within hundreds of kilometers and checked them out, and uh, but he never found anybody that could have had any connection with the disappearance. From Brevity Studios, I'm Ryan Wolf, and this is Guilt: Untold Stories. In the last episode, we met former Detective Inspector Ian Hollyoke and spoke about his involvement in this case. The following day, I met back up with Ian, so that we could visit the site together. And importantly, we decided to drive the route John Russell claims he took when he saw Cursor, and then looped around the block to go back and speak to her. But before we make this trip, I want to discuss John Russell in further detail. Because his involvement in this case over the years ranged from highly suspicious to downright bizarre. This is part three. The suspect and the rope. It was the night of Thursday, September the 1st, that Cursor rode down the beach on her horse Commodore and was never seen again. I sat down with retired Senior Sergeant Mick Cull in his Hawke's Bay home and he recalled being the first person to meet John Russell when he walked into the police station the next day, on the Friday morning. And the fact that it was a shock. Because up until that point, they had simply thought Curse's disappearance appeared to be nothing more than a tragic drowning. But I started work at three o'clock. I was the duty senior sergeant, I was in charge of the station. By five o'clock, the... uh, all the day shift staff had gone and there was probably only seven or eight of us working. And then when the report came in that she was overdue, I sent a team out there to look for her, you know, and that's when it began. Yeah. And um, we abandoned, oh, we didn't abandon the search, we curtailed it at about 11pm because of um, staff needing a break and... Um, no success from the search and then we all came back in about 6 in the morning and started again and about 10.30 I think it was about 10.30 I, the telephonist who works along, just alongside me just about 
told me she had a call from someone who was seeing Cursor at the gun emplacement. And that was the first inkling, you know, in my mind, shit, all of a sudden she's alive, you know, she was alive. Because the previous night, the staff down at the scene had formed the impression that she was in the water because there was hoof prints right up to the water's edge. And they formed the impression that she she was in the water and possibly drowned. Okay. Hoof prints up to the water's edge. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Um, okay, yeah, so, so that was the night of her disappearance. Yeah. I thought that might have been the case. Yes. And then, you know, the next day when Russell rang and said that he'd seen her at the gun emplacement, mm-hmm. all of a sudden that was a hell of a shock because uh, that was the first person who had sighted her. And it... You know, it turned it from a girl who's possibly drowned into something unknown at that stage that she was she was alive at one stage. Mm. Yeah, okay, yeah. So that was um, yeah. so up until he came forward. Really, it was looking like potentially a tragic drowning. Kind yeah, of thing. yeah, yeah. We had actually called out the the um, dive squad from Mornington, I think, on the way, and um, they were upping the search, and all of a sudden. You know, so I actually, uh, she, she's the watch house was busy with all sorts of other calls going on, and the telephonist said to me, "Can you take the call in another room, just adjacent?" So I shot over there and spoke to Russell. Yeah, and um, I said, "Well, you're actually vital that we speak to you. I'll send someone out to speak to you." He said, "No," and um, I'll come in. And I thought, "Shit, no, I don't, don't want to lose him." Yeah, you know. And I couldn't persuade him to, to wait where he was. He insisted on coming to the station, so he came into the station. Would that be normal sort of procedure? No, no, you stay there, we'll come to you. Is that what you sort of normally do so they don't go out somewhere and disappear? Well, well yeah. I might never have heard from him again. And, yeah. You know. Keep him on the phone kind of thing. And yeah, I would have liked to have kept him on the phone. Mm. But, you know, he was just a good witness at that stage. Mm. I, I knew nothing about him. What, what were you sort of... You've got him on the phone at this point. What were you sort of? Do you remember your sort of gut feel? He just sounded like a guy that had seen him. Oh yeah, he was just an ideal witness that had seen him. All of a sudden, there was probably a good chance that she was still alive somewhere. Mm, okay, and so then he comes in that next. Oh, so no, that, he comes in about. I was on tense tent hooks for about half an hour because if he hadn't have come in, I would have been really pissed off that we didn't get to him. Mm. Because he was vital witness and he was treated as a witness. He walked into the station and he actually drove around to the back of the station, which was a bit unusual. And he came down, I remember coming down the ground floor, coming our back door towards my office. And uh, What did he look like? <laughs> he was a short guy in blue overalls, hair and a bun, and he looked a bit shady. Okay, yep. And um, prior, to, prior to him arriving, I'd been up to see the... I, I straight away went up to see the district commander, Brian um, Kevin Ford, superintendent, and I said to him that it's possibly more than just a missing girl who's drowned because we've got an eyewitness coming in. And... Um, I said, you need to probably escalate it. And so he, he rang Kiwi, Ian Hollyoke, who was home on leave. Has Ian said that? Uh, yeah. 
I'm not sure if you mentioned yeah. that. Yeah. He was home on leave and he, he was directed by the district commander to come and take charge of the inquiry. Oh, so he came off leave? Yeah. yeah. So he arrived at the police station a couple of hours later and Bill sent down Detective Sergeant Murray Jeffries to take... Um, what's his name? Russell. Russell away. Yeah. And, and speak to him as a witness. Yeah. And... In the short term, I think he stayed in the station for about two hours and he was allowed to go. He was treated as a witness and not as a suspect. Yeah. Even though I think in the early part of the inquiry they would have done a quick check on his name and found out he had a history for, mm. I think, attempted ra- conviction for attempted rape or something like that. It's hard to, you know, like, you know, the whole thing with Russell and... It's hard, you know, you look at it all and, the, you know, the evidence, the small bits of evidence that are there and you start to think, you know, has, has he just led everyone down this crazy red herring trail of the guy in the white ute or was he involved, you know, or is it all just nothing? But it seems a hell of a coincidence. Yeah, it? it does, because I remember well into the inquiry, after we'd finished the search, I was approached by the CIB, probably Kiwi, I can't remember now, and told that Russell had made a confession where he had buried the body, and I had to find a team to go out and... Oh, so you were part of that organisation? No, I wasn't part. I I was one of the senior sergeants who were looking after staff, and I was asked to provide staff to go to the scene to uh, assist them locate the body. And they dug all day for quite a few hours where he said it was and when they finished and I don't know how deep they dug they went across to him and says there's no body there and he says I didn't say there I were there oh, <laughs> you know six or seven hours digging and uh, you know he was obviously mental by that stage mm. yeah, I mean you'd have to think at that point though you I'm, I'm imagining you're like holy shit like this is this is a bit of a eureka moment he we're going to find it yeah yeah well but I think they had lost confidence in him by then, yeah. knowing that he was irrational. Yeah. But they had to, since he said he had buried the body in point A, they had to check that out. Yeah. And I think, uh, yeah. it was frustrating for the staff to dig all day and not locate <laughs> anything. The point that's always been difficult for me to come to grips with was the, the fact that he rang in with his own name, late morning, after the day after, and came into the station and allowed us to identify who he was and if he was the offender, why did he do that? And I've, I've never come to grips with that. Mm. You know, I've spoken to detectives and they say, oh, we we had strong evidence from the rope to suggest that he was the offender. But my problem has always been that had he not rung in, we may have never ever got to him. There is no doubt that to this day, detectives that worked this case, including Ian Hollyoke, have never been able to fully satisfy themselves 100% that John Russell wasn't involved in Curse's disappearance. But like Mick says here, If Russell had not come forward to police with his sighting, it's more than likely that he would never have been located 
and ever considered a suspect. So why would he come forward so openly? As I suggest in the last episode, was this just to innocently place himself at the scene? There are really three reasons why Russell became and remained the prime suspect. Firstly, he had previously served two and a half years in prison for a rape conviction. Second, the rope, which we'll discuss shortly. But finally, was his strange behaviour over the remaining years of his life. Here, Ian Holyoke recalls two odd occurrences. One, a bizarre interview with a reporter, and another being a time many years later when he encountered Russell in a place he least expected it, at the other end of the country. He did over the years, he did uh, turn up occasionally at places. I, I mean, he he went to a television interview in Avalon Studios once and, to, and had an interview with um, Genevieve Westcott, the late Genevieve Westcott. She, she found me a year or two back when she came to Hawke's Bay, but sadly she's passed away since then, but he wanted to tell her his side of the story. Uh, and then I think he crashed his car after that, nearly died, intentionally or unintentionally, I know not. Um, but he had a very uh, sad life after this incident. Um, and, uh, I mean, at one stage he went to, to the Jensen's house. Once or twice he went to the Jensen's house and 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 tried talking to them, saying he, he didn't have anything to do with it, but people were pointing the finger at him. And um, on, on one occasion, you know, many years later in my career, it would have been 10 years, oh no, some years later, I was in Christchurch, I was, by then I was a district commander in Christchurch, so we're talking about 1990, early 90s, and um, he came to my office, my secretary brought in a man who wanted to talk to me about something serious, and I realised it was this guy, and he had been... Uh, He'd been resident in a nearby hospital and he'd wandered out and come down to the police station to see me. And we talked for half an hour and uh, and he speculated, you know, could it have been me or no? Yeah. Could it have been? Might have been? I don't know. No, it wasn't, no. And it went on like that for some time and then uh, I got him taken back to the psychiatric unit that he'd come from and uh, so uh, we never really knew. And uh, if the secret... Uh, was with him, he took it to the grave because sometime later he took his own life and uh, mm. we never ever got anything more uh, on him or about him. I guess, um, yeah, it's it's puzzling, isn't it? I mean, sometimes you find those people that just, they find a reason or whatever to just get themselves involved in a case, you know, and they mm. may have nothing to do with it. Um, yes, that happens, yes. Um, yeah. And, I mean, if he was, do you know what sort of his mental what his illness was or no no I don't know I don't know what his um, uh, but he did situation time. was before the, the happening but afterwards uh, you know from from the events that happened you know crashing the car uh, these odd calling on people and, uh, mm. and speculating whether or not he was a offender indicated that he did uh, you know, have some uh, uh, psychiatric problems afterwards and uh, but you know, that—that's yeah. not evidence or anything. It, no, it, 
it affected him for whatever reason. We don't know. I'm not aware of exactly what John Russell's mental health situation was, so I won't speculate. But over time, it became clear that he was not a reliable witness. There was one person that never questioned who was responsible for Curse's disappearance. Her mother, Robin Jensen. Over the years, on two separate occasions, Russell approached Robin and Curse's father, Dan, to try and assure them of his innocence. Robin described this encounter with Russell in her book. Over the following days, she recalled this conversation for the police. Here, I've paraphrased this segment from her book. One night, a man was standing at our door. Mrs. Jensen, he inquired, do you know who I am? I looked at him, but had no recollection of ever seeing him before. Are you sure you don't know who I am? No, I replied. I'm John Russell. Have you come to tell me where my daughter is? I replied. I wish I knew. For some time, I knew I'd come face to face with my daughter's murderer. I didn't know how I'd feel. Anger, perhaps. But now, I just feel pity. But I desperately wanted him to tell me where he had put Cursor before he left. I had to come and see you. You know I'll be arrested for coming, but I just can't keep away, he said. And you won't be able to keep away until you confess. I knew you would one day come, but I thought it would be to tell me where my daughter is. I wish I knew. I wish I could help you. It's the guilt of my past that I can't live with. It's driving me insane. Well, you can be. All you need to do is tell me where my daughter is. Tell the police, and you will be free of the guilt. That is the only way. I don't know where she is. A lot of people say she's overseas. I'm sorry to have troubled you. The trouble you caused me happened on the 1st of September. People have something against me because of my past. I don't know why I went to the gun emplacement that day. I know why. You saw a beautiful girl and a horse. That's why you went there. Yes, that's why. Tell me what happened when you drove in there. She spoke to me and said another man had gone to ring her parents. She said you would be there in five to ten minutes. I know what you're saying. And the story about the other man is rubbish. I have a clear picture of it all. She would have put up a good fight. She would have fought to the bitter end. She was brutally assaulted. She was grabbed by her hair from behind and her head was bashed into the gun emplacement. That's how the blood got onto the gun emplacement. And there was blood on the horse too. And then she was unconscious. I would rather she died than was raped by a bastard, I said. She wasn't raped. She wasn't dead when she was taken away from the emplacement. Did you dispose of her while she was alive but unconscious? I didn't dispose of her. 
Did you get someone else to do that? I'm really sorry to have bothered you. I really don't care if I'm arrested. Are you ready to confess and tell the police? I have nothing to confess. They want me to confess. Do you know what it's like when you have 50,000 people that hate you? They don't hate you. They want the truth and you hold the answer. I knew the police would be straight on to me because of my past. You need never fear me, Mrs. Jensen. You don't know what it's like to be going insane. I thought I could talk to you. I hoped you'd understand. I don't know what happened that day. You tied up the horse. The horse wasn't tied up when I left. I didn't have any rope in my car that day. You know that you did have some rope in your car. You know, I know, and the police know where that rope came from. I didn't get out of my car. I talked to her through the window. The police want me because of my past. Are you saying that the police are no longer interested in the inquiry about my daughter? Yes, that's right. The police are not interested in your past. That's been dealt with. I don't care if I'm arrested. I don't really care what happens. I'm sorry to have troubled you. I'll have to speak to you again. When you're ready to speak to the police, or to give us the answer to the question I ask, where is my daughter? Then you can make contact with us. But until then, there's nothing to talk about. As this was not a recorded conversation, and it was recalled from Robin's memory, we can never know its accuracy. And naturally, she's likely to recall elements that may align with her own belief that Russell was responsible for Curse's disappearance. It's obvious that he is not of completely sound mind, and Robin described him as the most convoluted man I've ever conversed with. In this conversation, Robin mentioned the rope and the fact that police believed it was connected to Russell. The rope she's referring to is the approximate seven foot length of thin cord that was used by someone to tie Curse's horse Commodore to the gun emplacement. When the horse was found wandering by the road, it was found with half of the rope attached to its bit the other half later found attached to the gun emplacement. This rope was the only piece of direct evidence in this case. And in a time before DNA, police resorted to different but complex scientific methods in an attempt to locate its origin. Through this analysis, they were able to determine that the rope was foreign to the scene it was found. There were no traces of sand that would be expected had it been lying in the vicinity. It did contain a number of other trace amounts of pollens, spores and other elements. And after a search of his employer's property, it was discovered that a number of these were present. The type of rope itself was also of interest, as it appeared to have been taken from a caravan awning, which again could have been linked to the property Russell was employed. 
However, both Russell and his wife were adamant that they had never seen the rope before. And no matching rope was found at theirs or his employer's property. Is it possible that these different pollens and chemicals were present throughout the region in properties other than Russell's or his employer? No doubt. But there did certainly seem to be enough evidence that the rope couldn't be ruled out as having been somehow connected to Russell, but ultimately was never concrete enough to build a case. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Now that you've got a good understanding of who John Russell was and his connection to this case, let's jump back as Ian and myself set off to drive the route he said he took that afternoon. Following State Highway 2, we crossed the first of two bridges that approach the gun emplacement. The ocean is on our right. The bridges are relatively low profile, with the side rail only a few feet high. The bridges were narrow and busy then, and remain so now. The thing too with these bridges is they're quite, they are quite sort of narrow. You don't want to be yeah, straining yeah, your that, attention that, around yeah, too you, much. You, you can't be gawping around too much. You need to be watching what you're doing. In those days too, because there was no bypass or anything, the road probably would be similar business yeah, yeah, to this, wouldn't yeah, it? Be, yeah, yeah, more or more. Like this, yeah. Now they're way in the distance. There oh, yeah, trees I see. Yeah. you can see, but I mean, you wouldn't see even people from this where you can. No, you're not paying attention from no, here, though, are you? No, you can perhaps there might be someone you can see there. Um, but it was a gun emplacement, it was covered over after this. this yeah, in, uh, in respect. So, if you were coming from here, you might see a horse over yeah, there yeah, if you were paying yeah. attention. Yeah, you could do it just, just through there. As you say, how high were those things? Yeah, I don't know, you'd need to be. Uh, yeah, they might not have been that high, so you could have perhaps seen a little bit more. So you can you can see. Yeah, you can now. It would depend how fast split. you were going, really. Yeah, yeah, it? yeah. Now you can see a bit of stuff, and you can, you know, you're perhaps only 50 metres away, 75. Mm. Can I go down? Oh, no, not down. No, no, we'll, um, but we'll just do a quick five minute retracing. Okay, yes, yeah, so he says he came can. here. He goes along, and he thinks that's suspicious. And as I understand, he goes right down to where we came out, okay. crosses over the back, comes up to the dust area, and then goes over there, which is what we were doing the moment. Driving past, there's no doubt that you can clearly see the area of the former gun emplacement, which at its closest point is 110 metres away from the road, and has now been covered over with dirt. But it is a busy road and a narrow bridge. And unless he had been driving slowly due to traffic build-up, it is hard to see how Russell could have seen enough to be suspicious. But nonetheless, we follow the road north and take the 5.5 kilometre loop that Russell said he took to return back to the emplacement. Yeah. So it's quite a big loop, isn't it? Yeah. It's interesting even that 
why would he you know why would he even say that he did come all the way down here yeah, if sure. he didn't it takes us around five minutes to do the complete loop back to the site of the gun emplacement and we follow a rough track down the top of the beach strewn with piles of debris from the recent flood at the time of Curse's disappearance it was possible to drive down to and right round the gun emplacement but today this is no longer possible we drive as far down as we can before jumping out of the car and making the short walk to the memorial site Yeah, in recent years we've been able to come along and drive as long as it's, 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 it wasn't a proper road. There's access in here, but it's locked. We could often drive our truck down here or car down here and, and up to the uh, mound and do a oh, bit of tidying up and that sort of thing. Yeah. But since the uh, cyclone, um, you can see the beach is just The site of the former gun emplacement was at some point covered in dirt. Only a small piece of concrete is now visible. Ten years after Curse's disappearance, a memorial plaque was placed, as well as a Pahutakawa tree, which has been added to and tended by Ian and former detectives over the years. It's their, their memorial and their tree, <laughs> and uh, so I negotiated with Robin and and uh, and the Rotary Club came and planted three more trees. Um, yeah, and, and sort of finished us off. And then later, as I say, the Green Meadows Club and came and built that shelter. Ah, oh, I haven't been walking for a while. So what do we got? So that, yeah, that's a park plaque that shows, as it says, 1993. This tree is planted in loving memory of Curtis and Mary Jensen, last seen alive at this place. 1983, so it was 10 years later the yeah. plaque was put in, and I think that tree... Oh, so and, that was uh, the original, yeah? Yeah, well, I think I think the original tree might have been planted two or three times too, because <laughs> they suffer a bit here, but yeah. we, my rugby club came and planted three more. Um, so, so and, this we, and we've tied that, but it hasn't, no one's been here since the floods. Um, I came down here looking, Ross Pinkham has... We're going to come here in the next week or two and, and clean the The city mows it too. Yeah. We just come occasionally and clean that up, and I think I've repainted those words once. And we put some flowers here. And uh, So originally that, that, uh, it was that plaque and that tree, and the plaque actually faced out to sea, um, I guess significantly, because yeah. we believe she had disappeared and out into the sea. But when... When we uh, oh and the and it was a gun emplacement like I showed you back mm. there, but after sometime after well, it wasn't in my time here I went I left the city twelve months after the disappearance was promoted and transferred away. Uh, at some stage after that they well they say it's ten years later that they planted the tree, but at some stage after they covered the gun emplacement over completely in yeah. with agreement of the Jensen family and and difference to the disappearance and what it meant. So then. Yeah, ten years later they must have put that plaque in facing the sea. Well, when the when the when we started to jazz it up, the, the rope 
Sunrise Rotary Club did, uh, we wondered, because the people were coming out there on things, we changed the plaque over, so I got the families permission to, to shift the plaque over to the side. It makes more sense, really, doesn't yeah, yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it, it, it's now the focal point of the side. The people are coming to the mm. side. Um, so I suppose, so the the actual spot, I guess, yeah, somewhere, somewhere here. There, yep, yep. So this that might be the old, because it had collapsed down here, yeah. hasn't it? So that might be that old piece that's collapsed down. So the horse would have been tied yeah, yeah. here. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just trying to imagine... Yeah. It's probably even a bit lower than that, wouldn't it have been? Because it's quite surprising when I saw the photos and even seeing that one down there. They were quite tall, the, yeah. the gun emplacements. Yeah. Yeah, well, a horse would be hidden behind it. You might, might have had as a picture of me and the district commander and the commissioner had come here to visit and, and I'm standing here pointing or something. Oh, OK. Pictures and, yeah, I mean, there's a complete building here. Yeah. <laughs> Ground level is at least that level, I'd, I'd say lower than that. Mm. And so this actually, this is the spot where most of the blood splatter was here. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's it, yeah. Yeah, so, the, so if, if Russell's coming that way, and you've got yeah. this here, if you believe what he said, yeah. and if, then he's saying there was a ute here, yeah. and he saw her out there. Yeah, yeah it's somewhere here. Um, you can, I think, you know, it's sort of flat along here, and you could, uh, you know, tide permitting, uh, completely different now but you could drive right along here and, and round to here right round oh yeah, yeah there was a big loop round there wasn't yeah, it I think, yeah I think it went right round yeah so I suppose the thing is there were no although no blood splatter was ever found on this no, side on this side no um, but I'm not 100% on that yeah I mean you certainly can see from the road but yeah. it, I don't it's not necessarily enough to see to say, hey, that yeah. person looks like they're in trouble. Well, yeah. One thing um, Mick mentioned, and I haven't seen this anywhere else, but I don't know if you recall, but that he rec- mentioned that there were hoof prints that went all the way to the water. Oh, I can't remember. But he said as well, he said, oh, I'm not sure, but he thought he remembered something like that, um, which, I, which I did think sounded kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I suppose my, my thoughts are, here. Yeah, it's kind of, I mean, obviously you can see, but yep. would would you? Would you be paying yeah. attention? Enough that you'd decide to go all the way and turn around. Yeah. A man's talking to a girl, a man's talking to his daughter, isn't he? Mm. You know, I suppose if she's well, got... Something's wrong with the man's helping the girl. Yeah. You could not assume mm. uh, really anything from, what's that, 7,500 metres? Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah. I suppose it's hard, you don't... If there was traffic, and the traffic was even... Yeah, did they even have traffic jams back then? I don't know. <laughs> I was going to say, you know, if you were stuck there and you were just sitting there looking over and you might have seen her with a... Yeah. Maybe you might think... Yeah, I don't know, it just, just seems so odd. It does seem odd. As we make our way back to Ian's, we discuss Russell and his possible involvement. But it seems that aside from the possible rope evidence, the word we keep using is odd. And when you're investigating a disappearance and possible murder, odd is just not enough. Lots of odd things happen every day. And John Russell was clearly what might be objectively defined as odd. 
Was he just in the wrong place at the wrong time? A good Samaritan trying to atone for his past guilt? Or was there a darker reason for his actions? In 2009, the detective holding the case stated there was likely more evidence pointing towards John Russell not being involved in Curse's disappearance than of his guilt. I don't know what they consider these pieces of evidence to be, but immediately there are a few things that jump out at me. First, and likely most important, Ian says that Russell was alibied and that his arrival home was corroborated by his wife and neighbours. When they simulated his timeline, the absolute most time, they said he could have had to abduct, kill and dispose of Cursor was approximately 20 minutes. And all this had to be done without being seen by a single person and without a single trace of blood being found in his car which was luminol tested shortly after her disappearance. And given that she was clearly bleeding at the site of the emplacement, to leave not a single speck of blood seems virtually impossible. Another point that immediately jumped out at me is the other witness sighting of Cursor walking her horse down the beach in the direction of the gun emplacement with what appeared to be an injury to her face. They described her wiping her face with a handkerchief, which appeared to be red. They thought she might have a broken nose. When Russell spoke to police the morning after her disappearance, he would have been unaware of this report. Yet he described the exact same thing. She had what he thought was a broken nose and a swollen jaw. Because as she told him, her horse had shied from the water and she'd had a fall. And of course, why would Russell come forward immediately and put himself in the very centre of the case if he was guilty of her abduction and murder? So then if what Russell was saying is true, that means there was a white ute and a man that never came forward. And what about the hoof prints all the way to the water? And the blood splatter? All things that we'll examine in more depth in the final two parts of Season 1 of Guilt Untold Stories. Guilt Untold Stories is a Brevity Studios production. Written, produced, and narrated by me, Ryan Wolfe. All opinions expressed in this podcast are exactly that. Opinions, and are not a statement of fact by the podcast itself. All persons named are presumed innocent unless proven otherwise in a court of law. You'll find further photos and video on my Instagram, RyanWolfNZ, and I highly recommend you join the discussion with over a thousand other guilt listeners on Facebook at the Guilt Podcast Discussion Group. Guilt is a 100% independent production. Unlike other New Zealand podcasts, we've never received a single dollar in taxpayer funding. You can support us to continue to make great content, plus get ad-free listening, bonus episodes and early release by becoming a Brevity Plus subscriber on Apple. You'll find the details in the show notes of every episode. This podcast was produced 100% without the use of AI. On the next episode of Guilt, 
untold stories. Uh, so this case gets reviewed at that um, yearly review. However, throughout the four last 40 years, information is regularly coming in. I would say on average two or three times a year, we just receive information out of the blue about the case. Um, so immediately that goes, it would have gone to Brian Shab, Emmett Lynch, now comes to me. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.